John 17, verse 1. I think it's still page 902. I didn't check. Just one verse today. We're going to take this slowly. You have heard me say it many times, and you roll your eyes, and you shake your head. But this truly is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. You have heard me say it many times, and you know it's true. I cannot do this chapter justice, for John 17 is arguably the greatest and the holiest chapters of Scripture. John Brown, an old Scottish pastor, not the abolitionist John Brown, a different one. He says of this chapter, without doubt, this is the most remarkable portion of the most remarkable book in the world. The scripture of truth given by inspiration of God contains many wonderful passages, but none, none more wonderful than this. J.C. Ryle agrees, calling John 17 the most remarkable chapter in the Bible. Why? What is this most wonderful and remarkable of passages? It's a prayer. It is the prayer. The prayer of the Son of God moments before he undertakes the great work of God, which would require the great suffering of the Son of God. And first, he pauses and he prepares and he prays. This is the Lord's Prayer. We tend to refer to Matthew 6 as the Lord's Prayer, but that is more the disciples' prayer given to us as a model by which we should pray. This is his prayer. The Lord's Prayer, as we here have a blessed glimpse into Christ's own heart. As we are here privileged to overhear the great intimacy and love and confidence and expectation and joy with which the Son pours out his heart to the Father in prayer. John 17 is Jesus the God-man at prayer. And we're told a lot that Jesus prayed. We're not told a whole lot what Jesus prayed, except for here. This is by far the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded for us. This is actually the longest prayer in the whole New Testament. And as it is the prayer of the Son himself speaking to his Father on the brink of his betrayal, this is a sacred and holy prayer. Here we have the greatest praying coming on the tales of the greatest preaching. As Matthew Henry puts it, this is the greatest prayer that was ever offered on earth, and it followed the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. And here I have to give a sermon on that. Uh, pray for me. In a sense, there is there's nothing to add to these words. Some in the past have even argued that we shouldn't preach on these words. They're, they're, they're so important and so sacred. It should only be read and not preached. I'm not going to do that. Don't get your hopes up. I understand the sentiment. I really do. I agree with the hallowedness of these words. But Christ prays them audibly before his disciples. The Holy Spirit inspires their preservation for us. And so they must be for us to consider. And to consider slowly with great solemnity. Knowing that we will never plumb the depths of these wonderful words. We've talked a lot about expectations recently. Today let's talk about priorities. I'm going to talk about priorities this morning. I just noticed this this week as I was studying and I found it interesting that in the three teaching chapters on this farewell discourse, remember 13 through 17, farewell discourse, Jesus teaches in 14, 15, and 16, and he's primarily teaching about the Holy Spirit. Those chapters are the fullest revelation we have of the Holy Spirit 
And in those three chapters, Jesus also three times talks about asking and praying. 14, 13, 15, 7, 16, 23. Jesus is teaching them to pray, and then he himself gets to praying. And there is much teaching here in his praying. The question for us is, what does he pray for? What are Christ's prayer priorities? Prayers reveal priorities. Your prayers reveal your priorities. What you most pray about, you most care about. What is it that you most want in the world, and what is it that you most pray for? We're about to see that Christ prays for and most wants glory. That's what we're talking about this morning. Glory. As he says to the Father, glorify your Son. Five times in the first five verses we read glory or glorify. Jesus prays for glory. And then, and this is the most amazing thing, this is a great comfort. He then goes from that to praying specifically for you. And he prays not that you would be healthy and wealthy. He prays not that your life would be easy and comfortable. He prays not that you would get whatever that thing is that you have decided that you have to get to be happy. He prays for you 2,000 years ago in his final words that you would see his glory. Priorities. Maybe we should consider the priorities revealed in the final prayer of the God-man. Maybe we should seek to align both our prayers and our priorities with his. I don't think it can be argued that we are all of us much too concerned with self and too little concerned with God. Much too concerned with our own glory and too little concerned with the glory of God. What's the solution? Why are so many of us so miserable when we profess to believe that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing? That we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That we have eternal life in the presence of the God who is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And that in everything that he does, he's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. There's a disconnect. What's the solution? Verse 1. Verse 1 this week. Verse 2 next week. Verse 3 the week after that. Then we'll try to pick up the pace a little bit. But there's, there's so much here in this chapter. And verse 1 is a beautiful summary statement, both of what Christ is about and how Christ is about it. I have four words, four verbs that are just going to serve kind of as our, as our outline, kind of little hooks to hang our, our kind of progression on to see what we're doing here. What is Christ all about and what are you to be all about what are you missing in your misery point number one is going to be the what the big idea is glorifying our title this morning is a play off of paul's words in second corinthians 4 17 and the weight of glory i want us to consider the, the way of glory even the way to glory how has christ gone about this chief end and aim point number two it's dying, and that's surprising. What else does he do? How does he prepare us for this? And how do we see and savor this? Point number three. I had four points uh, when I sent these to VJ yesterday, and then I worked late last night, shoved them together. So three and four we're going to do together. We're going to do speaking and praying together for point number three. But let me read the text. We're only going to consider the first verse, but listen, I, I want to read this whole prayer for you. I want to get this into your 
head. It is impossible for the reading of John 17 to be a poor use of time. So I'm going to read the whole thing for you. I'm going to pray, and we're going to come back and look at verse 1 in great detail. But, but I want you to pay attention. This is arguably one of the greatest chapters. Maybe some say the greatest chapter in Scripture. This is Christ himself in prayer, and part of that prayer is for you. So pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you would bow with me, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer.
Father, thank you for that word. For how wonderful it is to know when brothers and sisters in Christ are praying for us. Father, how wonderful it is to know that Christ himself has prayed for us. Father, we pray now that you would do for us in this time what is, is impossible for us to do for ourselves. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the glory of the Christ revealed to us in this text. Father, I pray that our mind would be focused here on him. All the things that are scrambling for our attention and our affection, Father, I pray that you would drive those things away for the next few minutes and that you would show us Christ. Father, I pray that you would help me to set myself aside. I pray that you would set me aside. I pray that you would set aside any attempts to obtain my own glory through the preaching of your word that is all about your glory and that you would be honored and magnified and glorified in this time and that we would know Christ and that we would grow in our love for Christ and that we would find great comfort in who he is and what he has done. Father, help us to see the glory of Christ now in the preaching of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one, glorifying. Glory, that's what this whole prayer is about. John 17 is about the glory of the Father through the work of the Son for the salvation of the church. It's God's glory revealed in God's Son in the salvation of God's people. So this is a prayer about the mission of the Christ and his followers to the glory of God. We, as the church, are Christ's followers. We exist for him and for his mission and his glory. So there's much that we can draw from this prayer and learn from this prayer. If you look over the whole chapter, notice, just look over at 17 as a whole. Notice that the ESV breaks it down into three paragraphs. Those three paragraphs correspond with the three general parts of Christ's Prayer. Everyone has recognized that in verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his apostles. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for his church, for us. And glory is the theme that is threaded through the whole prayer. And glory is the theme that is to be threaded through the whole of your life. What is it? We've got to define it first. Look at verse 1. If we were doing the whole first part of the prayer today, 1 through 5, we would notice that in verses 1 and 5, Christ basically says the same thing. Remember, that's this inclusio, that, this sandwiching effect that we keep seeing. This is a glory sandwich. Verse 1, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So there could be no question uh, what these verses are about and what Christ is praying for, what he is first praying for. Here is his prayer priority, and it is glory. We've talked a lot about the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, the Greek word that we find five times in our five verses is doxa. We sing frequently the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's the doxology. And so we generally use the word doxology to refer to praise. Our theology is supposed to result in doxology. Our knowledge of God must result in love for and praise for God. So doxology is praise. Absolutely. 
But literally, the Greek words mean glory words. Right? Logos is words. Theology is just theos, God, and words. Words about God. Thinking, doctrine, truth about God. So doxology is words about glory. God's glory, which will, of course, result in praise. And this word doxa, a noun, comes from the verb dokeo. That's a fancy Greek. I'm trying to impress you here for a moment here with the Greek things. You've heard probably of docetism. There's this ancient heresy back in the day that maybe even John is dealing with in his letters. But the docetists argued that Jesus only seemed to be fully man. He appeared to be a man and have flesh, a uh, physical body, but he didn't actually really have those things. So this group was named the Docetists because this verb means to seem or to appear. That's where this word comes from. And as something seems to you or appears to you, right, you then develop an, an opinion about it. You have, you have thoughts about it. So we say things like, oh, you know, it, it seems to me, and then we go on to lay out what we think. We have words like orthodox, that just means right opinion or thinking, heterodox, different or wrong thinking or opinion. And so if something seems or appears good to you, you have a high opinion of it, you're recognizing it to be something good, something of worth and value. It seems good to me that we start catering in chip cookies for our members meetings, right? I think that would be a good thing. That seems good. Why does that seem good to me? Because they're delicious, and I esteem them, and I value them, and I enjoy them. So here I am, once again, making a fool of myself, talking about cookies and praising them and, and giving them glory. That's how this word that meant to seem eventually came to mean glory. And in the New Testament, every time it's used, it's used exclusively to mean an opinion or an estimation or a recognition of something that is high and that is right and that is good. And such a something that evokes a high and right and good response must be something of great, inherent, intrinsic worth and value. And so this word develops from to seem, to seem good, to glory. The thing that seems or appears to be great and good. So the glory of God just refers to his infinite and intrinsic worth and weight. Remember, that's what the Hebrew word, kabod, most literally means. It's, it's weightiness. I'm way too proud of my deadlifting illustration, so I keep using it. I'm sorry about that. But when I used to go to the gym over here in Blink, no one paid any attention to me when I picked up my weights and then I dropped my measly little weights. Nobody cares. Nobody pays attention. But there was one guy. It was one of the trainers. I don't know if he's still there or not, and he was a big dude. Blink is not the type of gym that typically, typically has big, strong dudes. It's, it's, like, it's not quite a lady gym, but it's, it's close. Like it's, you know, it has the free weights and things, but it's not like a gym gym. But this guy, massive. And when he lifted, when he loaded up four and five plates on each side of the bar, and then he would pick up that over 400 pounds, and then he would drop his weight you're on the second floor of an old garage that they've refitted, the room shakes, right? You can literally feel the 
weightiness. You could hear the great weight and all the heads would kind of turn and look and see like how much and we'd count the plates and see how much is that guy doing. Like, like that's gym glory. Like my weight has no effect. No one hears it. No one feels it. No one pays any attention. This guy with great gym glory, everybody pays attention to that weightiness. It's literally what the word means. Significance. Weightiness is significance. The sun, the weightiest thing in our solar system holds everything together and everything revolves around it. That's God's glory. It is his majestic, transcendent, incomprehensible goodness and greatness. He is great. He is glorious. Glory is all that he is as God himself. Glory is the sum and substance of all that he is as God. It's his infinite, intrinsic worth. It's his infinite and intrinsic beauty. He is infinitely significant and weighty, and therefore everything else is dependent upon him and revolves around him. And there's no more important truth for you to learn and love and live in light of than the glory of God. He's the center. You are not. It's all about him. It's not about you. Romans 11.36 is Paul's doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God's glory is the source, it's the means, it's the end of everything. Everything comes from him, it's sustained through him, everything will resolve and return to him and to his glory. And so this is his greatness, his beauty, his worth. And we've got to learn that God's glory is God's priority. And what we see here in this prayer is that it is Christ's priority. And that is why Christ prays first and foremost for it. But look more closely at what he says. Go back to the text. Look at verse 1 again. He says to the Father, glorify your Son, glorify me. There's two huge things there. First off, Isaiah 48, 11, God says, my glory I will not give to another. And now here's Jesus. Glorify me. Give me my glory. That's quite a request. Man does not get to say that to God. Jesus, the Christ, does. For he is the Son of God. He is God. John 1, 14, And the Word, the Word who was with God, verse 1, And the Word became, the Word who was God, verse 1, sorry, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You guys know that I don't love Christmas. That's not a surprise. I'm a Scrooge. I don't care. We're not supposed to celebrate the birth of Christ once a year, but 52 times a year. What a gracious God. He gives us 52 holidays. Every single Sunday, we have the privilege of gathering together and not working and celebrating the birth and life and suffering and death and resurrection of Christ. And so don't blame Andy. It's not the music team's fault, but I asked them to sing a Christmas song today. We're closing with a Christmas song. Deal with it. But pay attention to the lyrics. Pay attention to the glory of this song that we should sing year round. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Love that line. 
Yes, he's the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Yes, he's the Son of Righteousness. But he veils that glory in flesh. And yet, you can still see that glory even there in that very fact. Even there, in that incarnation, we see something of the very glory of God himself. For as John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I just, this is one of my favorite verses. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You stand on the steps of St. Patrick's over here and you look out across, you can basically see the, the, the big Atlas statue, right? Here's the mythology and here's the Titan that has the whole world on his shoulders. Christ literally upholds the universe by the word of his power. Imagine that. Just try. Listen, this is the foundational claim of our faith. This Jesus is God. He is God himself come to us. He is God himself become man, become one of us. And John wants you to know in his gospel and his letters, we've seen him. We looked upon him. We touched him with our hands. The life, he calls Jesus, the life was made manifest to us. And so we proclaim it also to you. We've seen him and we want you to know about him. For he himself is God and as God he is life. And so Jesus is the all-glorious God. He is the one of majestic, transcendent, incomprehensible goodness and greatness. Second thing then, so look at the verse again though, because then here's the question. If that's the case, if he already is the God of all glory, what does it mean then when he says to the Father, glorify me? He cannot add to the already all-glorious God. And so here's where we must remember that there are two general ways that the scriptures speak about God's glory. Up until this point, we've been talking exclusively about God's intrinsic glory. In, just inside, inherent. Who he is in himself, in all his glorious perfections as God, that's his glory. But the Bible also uses this same word to talk about the extrinsic glory of God. Ex, out. That's what we're talking about here in verse 1. That's what Christ is praying for. The extrinsic glory of God is the manifestation or the demonstration of all that God is as God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So glory then is its radiance. It's a display. It's a showing and shining forth of the greatness and the majesty of God. It's God's self-disclosure to us. It's a visible manifestation of who he is. The, the expression of his being and attributes and perfection. It's, it's God and his transcendent greatness put on display. And that's what Christ is praying for. Reveal my glory. Show forth my glory. Demonstrate who I am, my infinite worth and value and goodness and greatness. May it now be seen and known and valued and praised. It was veiled 
Now let it again shine forth. Prayers reveal priorities. And Christ prays for glory. He prays for his glory. He prays that he would be seen and appreciated and honored for who he is. Now, here's where it gets really neat. I think all that was really neat. But this, is, this should be good enough right here, all that. But remember, we're all of us far too consumed with self. Let's think back to the last, I'm only going, going for, let's just pretend 10 minutes. Think, how much have you thought about yourself in the last 10 minutes and your hunger and what you really want to do this afternoon and what you can't wait to do until you get out of here and this, that, or the other? Just consider for a second and step back. How much have you been thinking about yourself? How much have I, in the preaching of God's word, while I'm talking to you in the back of my mind, am still able to think about myself? and what I'm doing, and how it's being perceived, and, and how you guys are responding. Think, think about that again, because we're all too far consumed with self, impressed with self, focused on self, concerned with the glory of self. So again, we, we struggle to even see and hear and appreciate what we've seen so far. We've just read that there was a man who was God himself, who somehow sustains reality itself by his word. And we're bored. We're bored. We've seen that there is a God who is perfect in his being, perfect in goodness, perfect in power, perfect in wisdom, that all things are from him, that he sustains them all. He's sustaining your very existence right now, that you can know him and you can be known by him. There's this all-glorious God who is and who is everything, and, and, and we're bored with that. Man, don't Listen, don't miss this. He is all of that and so much more. Again, I can't even begin to touch who he is. And Christ prays for his glory. But here's the neat part. When does he pray for that glory? And how does he pray for that glory to be revealed? Point number two. Dying. What? Where is that? And what does dying have to do with glorifying? Again, you, you know this, but it, it's, it's everything, of course. Look at the verse again. Look at it. First, notice how Christ begins his prayer before he gets to his position, petition. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, stop. Yeah, there's just so much right there throughout this prayer. Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. Here's the Son of God himself. You can just notice the respect, the solemnity, the sacredness with which he goes before. Them. There's the intimacy, but then there's also uh, there's the honor. Uh, Father, Holy Father. Yeah, there's just, it's too much to cover. Don't forget last time, 1627, the Father himself loves you. We cannot be reminded of that enough. We cannot meditate on that enough. Remember Spurgeon, think much on divine loving kindness. He says, if you find yourself dull and flagging spiritually, the solution is to think more than you have on God's love for you. I know that sounds trite. And simplistic, but it's really not. It's not. Hold that thought, and we're going to come back to that. But Christian, the Father Himself loves you. Whatever you're dealing with right now, the Father Himself loves you. And remember, that means not just He has some warm, fuzzy, positive feelings about you, but He has this love that seeks the good of the loved, this love that operates in pursuit of the good and the life of the object of that love. 
God himself, the God we've just discussed, this transcendent God of glory is seeking your good in everything that comes to you. And everything that comes to you, if he is the all-glorious, sovereign Lord of all, everything that comes to you ultimately comes from his gracious, fatherly hand. And he promises that no matter how hard, no matter how confusing, no matter how painful, no matter how much you think you have messed things up, he promises that he will work all of it for your ultimate good. The Father himself loves you. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son. Now go back to our verse. It is to this Father who loves his Son that his Son prays, and it is to this Father who seeks the good of his Son that this Son prays. Now keep reading. Father, the hour has come. Stop. It's the hour. Our second point here comes from this hour which is the hour. This has been a recurring refrain throughout John's gospel, starting all the way back in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says to, his, to Mary, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now it has. 13.1, we read, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour is the hour of his departure, and his departure is his death. Now look at our verse again with that in mind. Father, the hour of my death has come. Glorify your Son. And so this hour is both the time for the Son to be glorified and the time for the Son to be crucified. And wonder of wonders, it is in the very act and fact that he is crucified. It is in the fact that he's crucified that he is most glorified. In other words, it is at the cross. It is in his death that Christ is most manifested and revealed. Remember, glory is the greatness of God revealed. The cross is where the greatness and the transcendent goodness of Christ is most revealed. It is at the cross that the person of God shines forth most clearly and beautifully and compellingly. And how is that? How can cross and death be a revelation of beauty and goodness and greatness and glory? It would have been dirty and bloody and disgusting, and embarrassing, and humiliating, and he's saying glory. How? Peek ahead to verse 4. More on this in weeks to come. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth. You can stop. Can't get very far. We probably know 1 Corinthians 10.31, but we probably don't live it very well whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Christ did that perfectly in the whole of his life, in everything uh, he did. This is why he came. Remember, he's the word. Words reveal and relate. He has come to make God known. He's the revelation of God to us. And so all that he does, every single thing, reveals to us something about the greatness and glory, and especially here, the grace of God. Back to verse 4. I glorified you on earth. Catch the tense, the tense 
of this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Oh, so if we could just believe that. Remember, let not your hearts be troubled. How? There is so much that is so troubling, both outside my heart and inside my heart. How is it possible not to be troubled, surrounded by such trouble? Verse 4 is how. What is the work that the Father gave the Son to do? Look back at verse 2. This is next week. Three more gives. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all, to all whom you have given him. Our God is the God who gives. And the first thing that he gives is he gives a people to his son. And then he gives to his son a work to do on behalf of that people, which verse 2 tells us is to give them eternal life. And that must then mean, of course, that they don't have eternal life. That must then mean that they do have death, spiritual death. And this is why the most famous verse in the Bible is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, his people from every corner of the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in me should not perish, but have eternal life. The father gives his son a people, the father gives his son a work, and then so the father gives his people his son. In Mark 10, 45, the son gives his life as a ransom for many. So let's be clear. The work that the father gave to the son was the salvation of his people. Luke 19, 10, this is why Christ has come to seek and save the lost. And that's what the hour is all about. Look back at 12, 23 in John. We've already seen this. John 12, 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There it is again. It's time for the Son to be glorified. It's time for the Son to die. And it is precisely through the death that he is glorified. For that death bears much fruit. The fruit of the salvation of our souls. The fruit of life. This is glorifying through dying. This is glory through death. And this is what you need. Non-believer or believer. This is the solution to your trouble. Whatever it is, this is the solution. Again, did you notice the tense of verse 4? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't risen yet. What security then there is to be found here? Note the certainty and the confidence with which Christ speaks even before he has begun the final stage of his work of suffering and dying. He is in complete control. He is going to accomplish that which he intends which is our life through his death. Listen, if you are here and you are not a Christian, if all of this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, this is what we call the gospel, which just means good news, which we believe is the very power of God for the salvation of your soul. 
The bad news is that you need salvation. The bad news, the Bible tells us, uh, and our hearts and our actions confirm this, is that we are all of us sinners. And that none of us is righteous. That none of us is good. None of us have anything to be proud about. And this is a problem because of the God that we have just heard so much about. This God of all glory, this God of absolute perfection, must also then be um, absolutely perfect in holiness and perfect in righteousness. He must be right and good. And as he is perfect, he can accept nothing less than perfection for anyone who would know him and be in relationship with him. Our sin necessarily separates us from the holy God. Our rejection of the God of life necessarily results in death. And this is bad news. This is the worst news. If you are not in Christ, you are separated from God by your sin. And none of us can deny that we are sinners. And that sin deserves death and hell. But God, but this hour, this is precisely why Christ has come. Precisely what he has come to do. He has come to die. And that makes this hour the most crucial climactic hour in the whole of history. And there is no more important hour for your life than that hour. Whether you accept Christ or reject him. That hour is the crucial moment. The, the, the cross moment. Everything hinges upon this hour. God cannot just ignore sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He cannot look the other way, for then he would not be perfectly just, and he would not be God. We all want to live in a world of justice, and justice demands that wrongs must be made right. Crimes must be punished. Evil must be dealt with, and that's what Christ is doing on the cross. He has come as Savior, and he has come as Substitute. He was the perfect God in flesh. He had no sins for which he deserved punishment and death. And yet here he is coming specifically to die. Why? For me. For us. In our place. Taking on our sin. Dying our death. So that we might be forgiven and live. And this is the only way for anyone to be saved. This is the only way for God to be just and justifier, for him to remain just and to be able to forgive us for our sins because Christ has taken on those sins and paid for those sins in his suffering and in his death and then in his resurrection. Do you know this Jesus? Have you been forgiven of your sins? In a moral universe, sin must be paid for. Either you will pay for your sins or Christ will pay for your sins for you. Have you repented of your sins and believed in this Christ? This is the one thing that you need for this is the solution to your one ultimate eternal problem. And Christian, brothers and sisters, no, it's no different for us. This is the one thing that you need. You need to see the glory of the Father in the death of the Son for the salvation of your soul. And you need to see that Christ has already accomplished that work. 
You need to burn into your brain and read everything that you see through the lens of John's 1930, that it is finished. How do you see this? How do we learn and love and live in light of this? Well, again, point number three and four, shoving them together very, very quickly. It's speaking and praying. I'll be brief here because we just had a words, words, words sermon when we considered the work of the Holy Spirit a few weeks ago. Remember, we saw that the work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. There's the glory again. And we saw that the means through which he does it is the living and active word of God. It's, it's this. It's the scriptures. And we have coming up very soon. It's John 17, 17. Cannot wait for John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So there's much more word to come. But look at our verse one last time, and I want you to at least see this. It's how this whole wonderful chapter begins. Look at how it begins. When Jesus had spoken these words. What words? All the words of chapters 13 through 16. All the words of this one long farewell discourse. Full of words. Jesus spoke words to them. Do not miss that. Do not minimize that. 16.6, sorrow has filled the disciples' hearts. 14.1, Jesus addresses their troubled hearts. So they have troubled hearts, full of sorrow, and what does Jesus do? He talks to them. He teaches them. What does he give to them in their trouble and sorrow? He gives them words. And that should never disappoint us. For his are living and active words. His are words that work. His are words that are eternal life. Words that give life. And we've seen that the content of these words in these chapters was comfort. And that the comfort was primarily the sending of the Holy Spirit. Who would be with them. And who would be in them. And who would teach them. Words. Teach them all that we just talked about. The person and work of the Christ. Who he is and what he has done. His death and our life. Again, do you see how differently Christ comforts than we comfort? He gives them words. Words of revelation about who he is and what he has done. He says, hey, you're troubled, you're full of sorrow. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your circumstances. Eyes on me. And listen, as I said, I know this can sound too trite and stupidly simplistic, but it, it's, it's not. I've given you a break from the John Owen quote that I was using for a while, but it's, it's too good and it's too true and I am too far from grasping it. But remember, Owen provocatively claims that the universal remedy, the only cure for all that ails you, is a sight of the glory of Christ. That sounds insane. And how is that possible? What's well, only if Christ is infinitely great and indescribably beautiful, so good that any true sight of him, knowledge of him, experience of him, relationship with him is life itself dispelling death, is light itself dispelling darkness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, what's the blessing? What's the good? They shall see God. 
Listen, if God is as good as Scripture says, if he's creator and sustainer of all, if there's no good apart from him, if he is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore, if everything that you are ultimately looking for in all that you do and pursue is only truly found in him, then whatever you must do to get a sight of the glory of Christ is worth it. It's worth everything. It's worth all of your time and attention. If he is all of that, then he deserves to be seen as all of that. That's why he's praying for it. And if he is all of that, there's nothing better than the display of that glory. And there's nothing better for you than to see that glory. That truly is the one thing that you need. A sight of the glory of this Christ. And it, it it really is. It's found in the word. And it's found in prayer. And so here in this first verse, we, we, sort of, we see Christ's entire ministry summed up. It's the glory of God through the person and work of the Son, the deity and dying of the Son, and then it's his teaching us about that person and work and then praying for us that we would have the eyes to see and savor that person and work. He comforts them by teaching them, and then he comforts us by sending the Spirit to teach us. And then he prays for us. Again, aren't you so comforted when you find out when someone tells you they've been praying for you? Like, Oh, thank you. That's that's so comforting to hear and to know. Christ prayed for you. And he has prayed again, verse 24, that you would see his glory. Because he knows that that is what you need. And that he is what you need. Our dear sister Lydia, who the Lord uh, took from us on September 7th, 2021. She loved me well, and I miss her, and I think about her always. Um, One of the ways that she loved me so well, and one of the reasons I'm always thinking about her, is because she gave me many books, and I'm very thankful um, for that. I mentioned one of the books she left me when we began the farewell discourse in chapter 13. This is one of the other ones that she left us, and I'm mentioning it now. Um, because it's been a great blessing already, and I think of her every time I I open its cover. This is the sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones, just on John 17. You think that I'm slow. These are 662 pages, and this is part one of his sermons on John 17. So again, get over it. Uh, I'm not going that slow. I'm only 100 pages in uh, so far. Basically, they're all about these first couple verses. Uh, But it's in these sermons that he repeats this idea over ad nauseum that's been so helpful to me. And I'm convinced that he's correct. And he keeps beginning his sermons with this idea is that our problem is that we we fail to truly realize what is actually offered to us in Christ. He keeps claiming that, that all of our anxieties and troubles and uncertainties and doubts and disappointments, they just lived through World War II. Uh, by the way. Again, they had experienced much there in London where he was preaching. And he's arguing that all of our unhappiness, he says, is traced simply to the fact that we simply do not truly realize what is provided for us in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. God himself, full joy and pleasure forevermore. That's ours in Christ. That is our inheritance, and it is guaranteed for us. Christ has already accomplished it. It is finished, and it's, and it's there for the taking. Why are we so often 
so sad? And why do we so often so struggle? It's, it's many reasons. Again, I'm not trying to minimize the struggles of this life. But I know that part of my problem is that I don't yet realize who Christ truly is in all his glory and what he has truly done for me on that cross. Think more than you have on the love of God. Think much on divine loving kindness. Listen, your mind is going to be occupied by something. It's going to be filled by something. Let it be filled by something huge, something infinitely great and glorious. That's what you were made for. And that's why we're so often so sad because we fill our minds with something so small, with self, with that which is trivial and that which is pointless and worthless. And so we then cave in and fold in around that small little thing and we get small. Fill your mind with the expansive glory of Christ. Fix your mind on him. Give yourself to the word that reveals and relates him. And then pray, as Christ does here, that God would open your eyes to see his glory. And listen, all of that trouble, all the difficulty, I'm not saying it's going to go away. That's never promised for us. Christ doesn't pray for that. But all of it, if it doesn't change at all, more and more you'll be able to see that it is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory. More and more, you'll be able to say with Paul that we are sorrowful. There's the troubles, the difficulties, yet always rejoicing. It's because of this. It's because his mind is fixed on and filled with Christ that puts all things in perspective. Whatever it is that troubles you, listen, Christ honestly is the solution. A sight of his glory and are resting in his grace. Priorities. We have now seen Christ's. He prays for his glory, and he prays that we might see it. May our prayers and our priorities align more and more with his. If you would bow with me, I'll close this time in a word of prayer. Father, we now pray what Christ prayed for us 2,000 years ago. We pray that we would see his glory. Father, if all of just this sounds theoretical and, and abstract and, and unhelpful, uh, forgive me. Father, help us to see that there is nothing more practical than knowing you. That there is nothing more practical than meditating on your glory and on your grace. There is nothing more comforting and life-sustaining than knowing your great, unfailing love for us, demonstrated to us so clearly in Christ and in the cross. Father, forgive us for how quick we are to seek our own glory. Forgive us for how consumed our minds are with self and little things. Father, I pray that more and more that you would fix our mind on Christ, that you would give us a hunger and a desire uh, to know him, and an increasing love and true enjoyment of communion and fellowship with you by your spirit, uh, through your word, that we could truly say with David that in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, only you can do this for us. 
And so we ask now that you would. And we ask this only in the name of this Jesus. Amen.